This is the Monday, January 2nd, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine turns Tower Crane. Best-selling author and historian Hugh Howard introduces us to two men with visions for building that shaped the 20th century. His book is Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. I don't know much about architecture, and I still found this book enjoyable because of the energy and character of this Felix and Oscar pairing at their drafting boards, dueling it out with pencils and concrete. But since we wanted to bring you an informed discussion, we called up a pinch hitter to conduct the interview. You may recall thriller author Tom Grace's chat with best-selling author Gerald Posner on his book, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. You can enjoy that chat in our archives wherever you're listening now or stream it at historyauthor.com. Tom Grace's encyclopedic knowledge of the Catholic Church made him the perfect man for that interview. And since he's a practicing architect, I thought he'd be great to speak with you, Howard, about Wright and Johnson's competing visions for building. You'll get an idea for Tom's work by surfing over to tomgrace.net. As for his guest... Hugh Howard's numerous books include Mr. and Mrs. Madison's War, America's First Couple and the War of 1812, The Painter's Chair, George Washington and the Making of American Art, Thomas Jefferson, Architect, and the classic Houses of the Founding Fathers. Southern Living named one of his previous titles, Houses of the American Civil War, one of the best illustrated books of fall 2014. To dig into his titles, visit HughHoward.com and follow him on Twitter at HowardHistorian. Okay, now that we've put on our hard hats, let's head off to the job site and hear Tom Grace's interview with Hugh Howard, author of Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Hello, this is Tom Grace, and I'm joined on the line now by Hugh Howard, author of Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show. Happy to be here. The interesting thing about these great buildings is there's always a story behind them, and that's what fascinates me as a writer. I like to know what drove people to build these things. Ken Follett often talks about when he worked on his um, Pillars of the Earth and the sequel to that one, uh, World Without End, um, that it was in his yes. roaming around Europe while he was doing research on his other books or the writing that he was doing professionally. He would see these huge cathedrals, and it wasn't such a, a religious devotion in his case. It was just, you know, 
who built these things? Why did they build them? What, what were the, all the dynamic forces, you know, the temporal world, that is, that caused um, something like a cathedral to get built? And the same thing is true of these, you know, skyscrapers that you see that Johnson has dotted all over the United States. And certainly the Wright buildings, you know, the, all the stories behind them. And, you know, in Wright's case, many of his stories, you know, are worthy of soap operas. <laughs> Just a fascinating guy. And, and Architecture's Odd Couple is absolutely chock full of both of these. So I highly recommend that for anyone who's interested in the stories about how these buildings came to be. You've hit a tangent because I never knew anything about the, the relationship between these two men and how their, their worlds sort of orbited each other for about 30 years. And it was just kind of fascinating to see that dynamic illustrated. Yes, well, you know, the thing that inspired me to write this book was coming across the relationship that they had, which, as you say, did last about 30 years, commencing with the show that Johnson curated at the Museum of Modern Art that essentially introduced North America to what we now think of as the international style and modernism in its uh, steel and glass glory. And Wright was invited to participate in that show, but in fact he was seen by not only Johnson, but by Alfred Barr, who of course was director of the Museum of Modern Art, as kind of a forerunner and not a vibrant, live, significant creative force in 1931 when this show was being put together. So when the show finally went up and Wright discovered that he was being treated as yesterday rather than today and tomorrow, which is how he always thought of himself, uh, there was this little uh, free zone of uh, this, this, this moment of anger. And I think that set the tone for what was a very complicated relationship that endured until Frank Lloyd Wright's death in April of 19. 59. And they had some significant gives and takes, and I think had some influence on one another's work. I've really found fascinating the fact that here's Johnson, sort of a bon vivant, not really in the architectural, but kind of orbiting the outer worlds of it in the art side of the curating side with his involvement in the museums, and he gets involved in this curating this show up, the international style. And here's Wright, this you know driving dynamic force who's already cratered one career. Wright's an interesting character in that he's you know basically had three individual careers through his long life that any architect would give his eye teeth to have one of. And he he did three of them. He you know came back from the ashes and people writing him off and thinking he's dead. And you know here he comes back again with these things. But you know the fact that he kind of encouraged or drew Johnson out of these other things that he was doing with the criticism and the curating and all that, and actually got him involved in a way in architecture professionally. He did. You know, Johnson actually credited him with saying, credited Wright with saying to him at one point, you know, Philip, you just got to get serious about this. You know, you're going to be an architect or you're not going to be an architect. And I think that tension between the two men was manifest in, in a lot of different ways. You know, the reason we chose the title Architecture's Odd Couple was not that they were a couple, because, of course, they never were, really. I mean, they were never partners in architecture, nor were they any kind of, you know, emotional couple. You know, Johnson was gay, and Wright was an admitted homophobe. So their relationship was odd, shall we say, but in, in its way, fruitful. I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright would never have admitted to this, but Johnson certainly regarded arguably Wright's most famous and most admired building, Falling Water, as a direct reaction to the international style. 
in fact, Wright sort of did acknowledge this once in a conversation with uh, a junior apprentice saying that I'm going to outdo the internationalists here. That's one of my favorite lines in the book is the fact that I'm going to beat these guys at their own game. <laughs> yeah, well, in some sense he did. I mean, it is an absolutely astonishing building. I've been to it many times and never tire of going to visit it. It's one of my favorite buildings in the world. Me too. I had the good fortune to be there with a television crew a number of years ago. And in my opinion, the best way to experience a house short of living in it is to be there through the full cycle of a day. And we got there before the sun came up and we left after the sun went down. And to see the movement of light, to feel the changes in the atmospheric character, to, to experience the place at different times of day with different numbers of people in different places really gives you an appreciation of what a unique place, because it is truly a unique house. There's no other house that looks as much like a bridge and yet is also this unexpected delight. There's nothing else like it. And the way it's woven into the environment, probably more so than any of the other Usonian or more international style houses that Wright did, I think that one really embodies a lot of his organic architectural philosophy. I think it does. Perfectly. I think it does. The story of how he decided to do that. I mean, the commission for that from E.J. Kaufman, who, of course, was a very successful retailer, ran a big store in Pittsburgh, had quite a lot of money. And his commission to write was to build for him a waterfall cottage. That's E.J.'s epithet, waterfall cottage, which most of us would have understood to mean a cottage that overlooks this beautiful waterfall on this piece of property that Kaufman owned. But of course, Wright being Wright, decided that he would have to invert everybody's expectations. And he put the house in the waterfall rather than standing some distance away looking at the waterfall. And that meant that it had the kind of, as you were suggesting, the sort of integral connection to the stone, to the stream, to the hillside, and to the water itself, which flows underneath those cantilevered trays, as Wright called the balconies, that extend out over the breadth of the stream. Yes, you imagine them as, as the, the trays on a waiter's hand being held out, cantilevering over the thing. And, of course, he pushed, yeah. as he did many of his buildings, the technology a lot farther than it was capable of at the time. But he was really pushing the envelope, not just aesthetically, but in terms of how do you build things, the whole idea of reinforced concrete and all that. The major renovation that just occurred in the house that brought it back to its glory pulled all those flagstones up and inserted a lot of steel into it to bring the, the, the cantilevers back up into true because they were starting to, to dip a little too much into the stream. That's right. Well, Wright was a very intuitive engineer. His architectural training really only consisted of two semesters of engineering at the University of Wisconsin and then apprenticing with you know some good folks over the years. In the early days, Dankmar Adler was probably the engineer in charge at Adler and Sullivan. But he, Wright, had a had an instinct for how to do these things and that instinct was very creative very open-minded and it produced some spectacular buildings but it also produced uh, a certain number of shall we say roof failures the best one has to be the johnson house in wisconsin uh -huh. wing spread yes. where um he's he johnson's at dinner with a whole bunch of guests at his main table. And of course, he's at the head of the table. And it's one of these beautiful acrylic skylights, similar to what he used in the uh, Johnson Wax building. Right. And it starts to leak on him. So he has the phone brought over and he calls up Frank Lloyd Wright. And Frank, you know, the, the, the roof is leaking on my head. I'm having a dinner party here and there's rain coming down on my head. And Wright famously replies, well, move your chair. <laughs> and that's just classic Frank Lloyd Wright. The guy is just, you know, yeah. full of hubris. And you know, I'm right. And, you know, yes. there's a problem. You know, move your chair. In some sense, I, I suppose that event was preordained because there's another 
Wright story about the time that the same man, Hib Johnson, who was at that point a prospective client of Wright's, went with Wright to visit a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which had been built for a Wright cousin named Lloyd Jones. Wright's mother was Lloyd Jones, so there was an extensive family. And this house, which stands today, it's a very nice house, a handsome house with lots of glass and lots of steel, was the night that Wright and Johnson arrived. It was raining quite hard. And as they went into the house, and they were, they were visiting because Wright was trying to persuade Johnson that he was the right guy to do a number of different projects for Johnson, which, of course, in the long term included the Johnson Wax Administration Building and a number of other really quite significant structures, including Wingspread. In any case, they arrive at the house in the rain, and they walk in the front door, and there are buckets placed in various places around the floor of the house because the roof is leaking. And Hib Johnson looks kind of concerned, astonished, and asks the lady of the house, essentially, what is the story here? And she turns to him and, without missing a beat, says, this is what happens when you leave a work of art out in the rain. <laughs> I have heard that story, and yes, it's it's quite true. And when you talk about the way the architects practice, Wright was very much his own man. He chafed at going to school, which is why he stayed at the University of Wisconsin for such a brief period of time, and even working under uh, Adler and Sullivan and all that. Eventually, he wanted to get out on his own, and of course, he started off originally just doing the houses, and he needed to uh, feed all his growing family moonlight jobs until he finally got fired for moonlighting a little too much. But right. he really worked on it on his own. And collaboration really wasn't a mode of operation for he was a benevolent dictator and sometimes not so benevolent a dictator in terms of how he ran his office and, and ran his projects and he, sometimes how he treated his clients. But then on the, the other side of it in this odd couple, you have Philip Johnson, who essentially built these wonderful collaborations because he needed them. I mean, he, he really wasn't the hands down drafting guy who's working out the, the finite details of you know flashing a roof and all that. He's more of a, a big picture kind of impresario, but yet here are these two arguably bookend of the 20th century architects. And what kind of influence did, you know, here's the the superstar architect, the really the first brand name architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. What kind of influence did that have on Johnson as he drifted out of his collectical career and really settled down and became the architect Philip Johnson? Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think that in terms of architects who influenced Johnson most directly, you mentioned the man who assumes that role, namely Mies van der Rohe. The star in Johnson's firmament, always architecturally speaking, was Mies van der Rohe, not Frank Lloyd Wright. And in fact, in Wright's lifetime, Johnson was much more likely to diminish Wright's standing than he was to say admiring things about him. I mean, there's the, the very famous line that he theoretically uttered first uh, at about the time of the MoMA show in the early 30s, but he said it repeatedly over the years, including aloud before uh, an audience at Harvard in the middle 1950s, in which he, he characterized Wright as the greatest architect of the 19th century. Now, when he said that in the 1950s in Cambridge, at that very moment, the Guggenheim Museum was emerging from the sidewalk on Fifth Avenue in New York, so this guy was no 19th century architect. I think the Guggenheim today is an astonishingly contemporary building, and we're speaking in the 21st century. So I think that, you know, the relationship, which is, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book and one of the things that attracted me to this was that tension between how Johnson 
in his own mind thought architecture should be and and how Wright fit into that role. And it was really only after Wright died that Johnson could bring himself to acknowledge the kind of genius that Wright brought to the discipline of architecture. Certainly there was admiration, there was some kind of recognition, but only later in the game, I think, did Johnson really appreciate what kind of Olympian figure Wright was in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at the the kind of things that Wright did, you know, with the furniture and everything else in the early career, and then the, the prairie homes, and that, that sort of eclectic, as he's sort of working his way around geometries, and then he breaks the geometry, and he, he starts opening the box up, and he starts using different forms. And you realize just what a master of not only form this guy was, but of space. I mean, the Guggenheim is certainly the, the crescendo of his career, this incredible volume of space that's you know, only hinted at in things like the Larkin building 50 years earlier or whatever. But I mean, to create a, a the spiraling ramp and all that, you, you haven't seen sort of crazy museums like that until Zaha Hadid and you know, Frank Gehry. You know, it's sort of in this modern era where we have you know parametric modeling and computers that can actually map this kind of thing out. Yes. And here's Wright to doing it probably by peeling an apple or whatever to see how the coil is going to work. And the fact that he's able to hold all that into his head is just nothing short of astonishing. Well, when they were building the Guggenheim Museum, they literally put a post at the very center of the site and then extended like a compass, like a string with a pencil on the end, some cabling to figure out exactly how the turn, how they were going to lay out the, uh, they had, certainly they had drawings, but the actual construction process, they had to create this mechanism to do it because they didn't have a laser transit. You know, they didn't have a extraordinarily detailed computer plan of how every piece was going to fit together. They had to make it up as they were going along, which of course posed all kinds of problems for everybody, including the building department. You know, the New York Building Code did not anticipate circular buildings. It's a city with a whole bunch of squares, and here Wright was trying to put a round peg into a square hole. And of course, this was the second time he'd done it, because the car dealership was sort of the first time he sort of brought that in there. But in my business, we refer to that as means and methods. You know, we as the architects, we will draw what the final product's going to look like and how the whole thing looks when it's all put together. Yes. But it's up to the contractor to figure out the means and method to get from a pile of material into the finished work. And yeah, the thought of working on the means and methods of putting that building together it's totally cutting new ground. There's yes. there's a famous story going back to the Johnson Wax Company when they were putting the, the headquarters together and he was proposing these very tall, slender pelotes, these yes. giant mushroom-capped things that would have the, the skylights in the, the intersections between all the grid work of these columns, these, this forest of pelotes. And, of course, the, the Wisconsin Building Department did not believe these things would stand, they would fall down, they would kill everybody in the building, and they, they, they were just aghast at the whole idea of it. So they built one. It's, so it's a, an individual slender column with this big, huge lily pad on top of it, and they began to load it with sacks and sacks of sand or concrete or whatever it was. They were just placing these things on top of it to take it to failure. And once it got well beyond the, the predicted snow loads for Wisconsin and all that, and it was still standing there, it wasn't wavering, and, and this was one that wasn't braced like the rest of it would be when the whole forest was built. There was just a single standing tree out there. And they took it to complete failure, and it took a huge amount of weight to finally get that lily pad to come crashing through the column. And at that point, they wrote it off and said, okay, Mr. Wright, you proved your point. It's not going to fall down and kill everybody. <laughs> well, you know, the whole Wright and Johnson that compare their design methods is in some ways unfair, I think, because Wright, in addition to whatever genius he brought to it for thinking of imaginative solutions that no one else had before, he was, first and foremost, a consummate draftsman. 
he could execute wonderful presentation drawings back in the day when an architect's that, that was absolutely essential to selling the job. You had to present spectacular drawings in a way that I think there's much less of a premium on that today when most drawings uh, are generated by some kind of CAD software program. So he was a consummate draftsman. Yeah, none of us are going to the Beaux-Arts school anymore to learn how to do gouache. On, That's right. Uh, yeah, I had one of the last teachers at my school who did that. And the guy was 90 when he was teaching us how to do right. some of the stuff. And you know, I think in a small way that the discipline of that survives at places like Notre Dame with their classically inspired program. But for the most part, that's gone. And in fact, Johnson was a beneficiary of that because he was the first to admit that he couldn't draw. In fact, when he applied as a man in his 30s, having already had a career as a curator and as a critic in New York, when he applied to the Harvard Graduate School of Design, he actually said at his interview, he said, I'm not really that good a draftsman. And they looked at his hands and said, they look fine to us. You'll be fine. <laughs> You'll be okay, Philip. And indeed, he was. But again, to go back to what you were saying before about collaborators, that was why he always had partners. He had John Burgey late in his career. He had Landis Gores early in his career. He had a mix of other people who could tend to the nuts and bolts of the process. He was happy with the big ideas, but he wasn't. Philip Johnson himself, so happy with executing details. Yeah, the building here in Detroit is a Johnson Burgee building. But, and of course, is his famous collaboration with Mies Vandro. I mean, is his hero to produce the Seagram's building. And, and I was like learning new things. And, and that was one story I never heard before was the fact that the state of New York wouldn't grant Mies an architect's license. And here's a guy who built beautiful things in Europe, you know, rebuilt Chicago, um, teaching architecture, and he can't get an architect's it's license. Completely absurd. On the other hand, it was probably a fortuitous circumstance because it meant that Johnson became the architect of record for a period of time in New York, which in a very real way launched his career. And I think his career, even if he didn't produce the kinds and varieties and numbers of stunning buildings that Franklin Wright did, he was a very positive presence in the world of architecture for several decades preceding his death. It wouldn't hurt a young architect to come out and have in his portfolio the fact that he worked on the Seagram's building or did the interiors for the, the Four Seasons. Absolutely not. And they were very influential, I think. You know, you can't ride up in an elevator of a certain vintage in New York City without seeing that kind of chain mail lining to elevators. That was a Johnson innovation. He picked that up. And I think anybody who's ever had a meal in the now late lamented Four Seasons remembers those undulating curtains. And it was a very effective, very dramatic uh, and agreeable place to be. Agreeable enough that Johnson had lunch there pretty much every day for about 50 years. Well, I was fortunate on my first uh, meeting with my publisher in New York. That's where they took me to dinner. It was the Four Seasons. Ah. So they, they knew I was an architect. They said, well, we got to take you to this place because it is the place to be. And I'd heard about it and to actually be able to sit there and enjoy a fine meal in that restaurant was a, a highlight. Well done. And it was kind of funny when Dean asked me to pinch hit for him and I started preparing for this interview, I sort of had this Twilight Zone theme song running in the back of my head. I'm a practicing architect as well as an author. And the firm I work for is Smith Group JJR in downtown Detroit. We've been around for a little while, about 150 years. Our office is right downtown of Detroit in this beautiful old Art Deco skyscraper we designed during the, the heyday of the skyscrapers. And right outside my 20th floor window, I look directly across the street at One Center Detroit, which is one of Philip Johnson's final buildings. Uh -huh. Now, if I turn my head slightly to the left and I look 
past this, the side of the skyscraper, sort of down the street between this, this skyscraper and the, the one that's uh, immediately north of it, I can look through over the old Wayne County building, which is a beautiful building, these sculptures on top of it. And just beyond that, I see Lafayette Park and it's these two uh, residential towers that rise out of it. And that location is the largest collection of Mies van der Rohe buildings in the world. <laughs> and my building is right on Woodward Avenue, which is one of the main roads that runs north-south right out of the city of Detroit from the river. And just a few miles up the road, and it's kind of funny because Dean occasionally will talk about his wife being a genealogist, and she does some genealogical work with me as well, helping me trace down my family. And I was skulking around a cemetery that's just a couple miles up the road, up sort of the, on the border, northern border of Detroit. And very close to that, at about the time that Dean was asking me to do this, is the one and only Frank Lloyd Wright house in the city of Detroit, which recently was recovered from being a blighted house and has been fully restored, and it's absolutely gorgeous now. So it's kind of like you get the... Uh, I got Philip Johnson, I got Frank Lloyd Wright, I got Mies van der Rohe, all kind of wandering around in my head saying, you got to do this interview. So, <laughs> so, so here we are. You're in the nexus there, Tom. I, I am in the zone here. Of, That's uh, wonderful to hear about the Wright House. Uh, maybe 20-odd years ago, I was in Detroit, and I got a chance to see that house in, uh, in darker days, I guess you could say. And uh, it's wonderful that it's been uh, rehabilitated. Yes, the Dorothy Turkle House. It has a, a couple acquired it and brought it back to its, its mid-century modern perfection. So we've got that one. We've got the Affleck House, which is just a little bit up the road in Oakland County, um, are the two that are the closest to the city of Detroit. And there's a few out in my neck of the woods out in Ann Arbor. Right. Yes, of course. Including one, uh, the, not, not a Frank Lloyd Wright house, but it was inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a Roby house, basically. It was put on steroids, the uh, Domino World headquarters. Yes, I've been there years ago. I did a piece for the New York Times about the uh, one of the houses of rights in Buffalo. And I spent some time with Tom Monahan at the time. He was in the midst of that moment where he was uh, driving the market for Frank Lloyd Wright artifacts right through the ceiling. He was a great big fan as that building attests. Well, he was a, a frustrated architect. I guess he had wanted to go to architecture school at U of M, but I think he made better of the situation. But he came to visit us when I was in architecture school, and that was sort of the heyday of when it was one of my instructors, Gunnar Burkert, is the architect of that building. Uh -huh. So Monahan would come to speak to yes. us about a businessman's view of Frank Lloyd Wright and the kind of things he was doing to try and restore various artifacts from, from Wright and, and just acquire them and take care of them. He, he saw his role as sort of a, a shepherd of these Wrightian artifacts because he was just such a huge fan. Interesting man. Well, you know, when it comes to comparing Wright and Johnson, yeah, you know, in giving lectures about this, people ask and they say, you know, do you really think that Johnson was as good an architect as Wright? And the simple answer to that is no, obviously not. Uh, Wright was a, a certifiable architectural genius. Johnson was a man of considerable competence and, and some creativity. But the more detailed answer I give to that is that before we came up with the title we finally put on the book, the working title was The Master and the Maestro. And I think it's very clear that Wright was indeed a master of the discipline of architecture. On the other hand, Philip Johnson, thanks in part to his curatorial endeavors very early on, something he continued to carry on throughout his career, though less often. He had a continuing relationship with the Museum of Modern Art. Thanks to his gift with words, you know, he was, he was a critic of no small significance. And thanks to a generosity of spirit that meant he could embrace people like Eisen, you know, you, you name a significant late 20th century architect. Bob Stern, uh, Stanley Tigerman, <laughs> that whole sweep there in the postmodern era. When it's on and on. They all had lunch with him. They all got some kind of boost from Johnson. Johnson said to various builders, said to various commissioners, said to various folks, you know, you got to hire these people. 
you know, Frank Gehry was someone who absolutely benefited from the patronage of Philip Johnson because he was, even if he wasn't dispensing money and commissions himself, he was functionally a patron with the kind of power that he wielded in New York, in Houston, in some other places. And he enabled a lot of these guys to build their careers early on and become the folks that they became. Yeah, that's one of the uh, interesting things when you look at the body of work that both Wright and Johnson produced. You can go to any major city in the United States and walk around, you'll probably find a tower, something, because there was a, a period where he's, the Johnson just seemed to be producing these dynamic landmark structures. Wright's stuff tends to be hidden away a little bit more. I mean, we've lost some of his bigger pieces. The rest of it is his domestic ones, smaller pieces, and he preferred sort of out of the city. I mean, New York is a city that's been blessed by having a dynamic landmark structure right in the middle of it, right there on the park. That's right. That will be there as a, as a jewel in the city forever. Well, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, before the Seagram building got built, he got wind of the fact that it was going to happen, that the family, the Bronfman family, was interested in building a landmark building in central Manhattan. And he, already having the commission for the Guggenheim in hand, although it wasn't anywhere near built, it took 16 years to build the Guggenheim. He wanted the Seagram Commission, and he actually sought out a member of the family um, trying to get that commission. But there were a number of folks in decision-making positions who said, I don't know if we want this guy right. He's just too unpredictable. And quite frankly, he didn't have the skyscraper chops at that point to do a building like that. But, you know, I don't think that diminishes right at all because in some ways, I think domestic architecture, the houses that we live in, the places that belong to individual families and sets of families and so forth, are every bit as interesting and every bit as creative an enterprise as building big buildings like Johnson. You know, Johnson often admitted that when he designed some of these buildings, he was just designing the exterior and he'd been given a program that specified how many stories or how many square feet and the space of the thing. So it was a quite different creative process from that that Wright underwent when he designed Falling Water or he designed Hib Johnson's house. He had a real tabla rasa in a way that you don't so much when you're building most buildings to fit into a cityscape that have to meet the expectations and standards and statistics that are provided you by the developer. Well, had Wright lived into the postmodern era of the 80s and all that, he probably would have referred to a lot of Johnson's buildings as uh, boxes with yeah. fussy lids on them, much <laughs> as he did the Victorian homes of his era when he was just starting to come out of the Adler Sullivan office. And he wouldn't have been entirely wrong, by the way. Not at all. You're listening to my chat with Hugh Howard, author of Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Philip Johnson. You can visit today's guest at HughHoward.com and follow him on Twitter at Howard Historian. Publishers Weekly called Architecture's Odd Couple, quote, narrative nonfiction of a high order, enlivened by anecdotes and quotations from two very outspoken and colorful characters, unquote. And I think that sums it up very well, and it's high praise indeed. The book is fascinating because it's not just nuts and bolts architecture, uh, sort of a doctoral thesis comparing and contrasting two famous figures, but it gets into the personalities of not only the architects, but the people that surrounded them, their clients, the people who worked for them. You refer to a bit of that one, you know, here's Wright running around New York trying to lobby to get the Seagram's building for itself. I mean, the, the, the whole story of how does the architect get to commission to do the job, whether it's because Kaufman's son happened to be working for Wright for a little while and said, Dad, you really should hire this guy to do the house, the cottage that we want to do. Or Wright schlepping around New York trying to get work somewhere. 
One of the interesting stories that, I, that came out of the book for me that I had never known was the car dealership story. When he um, designed the uh, dealership for the Jaguar Porsche dealership in Manhattan, the first guy to do that. And the fact that he didn't get paid in cash for this one, he got paid in cars. <laughs> and interestingly, he got that job because Hoffman, Maximilian Hoffman, the man who ran that, uh, who, that imported car dealership after World War II, a former race car driver, and a very interesting story in and of himself, he was a social friend of Philip Johnson's, and he said to Philip Johnson, would you like to think about doing this? And Johnson said, why don't, you, why don't you talk to Frank Lloyd Wright about this? So that was actually a job that Johnson got, Frank Lloyd Wright. But it was a very interesting building, and as you pointed out, kind of a rehearsal for, uh, for the Guggenheim, because again, it has that, uh, the spiral ramps on the inside. Both Johnson and Wright, speaking of automobiles, both Johnson and Wright really liked nice cars. And if you run down the list of the automobiles that they had, there are Cords and there are Mercedes and there are beautiful big Packards. They were proud owners of nice big pieces of iron that they liked to drive around. And they shared that. That was one of the many things that they enjoyed together. And Johnson, in fact, played a small role in introducing automobiles into the Museum of Modern Art at one point where they began to exhibit cars, which course, our wonderful elements of modern design. Oh, they're beautiful, particularly from that era. And of course, the stories of Johnson, you know, packing his car up and sending it off to Europe so he'd have something to drive around with when he's touring and looking at all the Bauhaus buildings and interviewing all these uh, Germans in pre-World War II Germany. Yes. But you've given me a, a goal of life right out there because somewhere out there in the world, there's a, uh, a 1955 Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing, and I believe it's in Italy now. But it, it last appeared at an auction in Georgia and was purchased by an Italian buyer. And it's out there somewhere in the wind is Frank Lloyd Wright's Gullwing Mercedes, which is one of my favorite cars. Huh. To be able to, to touch Wright's automobile would be a... Yeah, there, there are photographs of that someplace, too. As that was Again, that was compliments of Hoffman. And, of course, Wright was famous for uh, repainting his cars as well because he loved the, the color Cherokee red or <laughs> Aztec red, as some people have called it. But he, he used that for all the metal work. If you go to uh, Falling Water and you look at the metal trim around the windows, it's all in that sort of rusty red that he just loved. And that, that was he thought the, the material should represent how it actually ages and, and behaves in, in the, the real world. It was a part of his organic architecture, so the car should be red. And, of course, not his fast red car. It doesn't hurt either. Well, Frank Lloyd Wright liked to control things. We talk about that in psychiatry today, people who like to exercise control. I can't say that Wright invented it, but he certainly was a practitioner. Oh, absolutely. I think if you're going to operate as a design architect at that level, there's a certain level of megalomania, and I'll admit that I have a touch of it myself, because I also write novels, so in that, that world, I'm God, so we could hold a whole psychological disposition on that. But, um, but Wright was certainly one who would design everything down to the furniture and how you should place the furniture into the house. I think in the case of Falling Water, there's one three-legged stool that I think the family brought with them, yes. and that may be the only non-Wrightian piece of furniture in the whole house. Yes, yeah, and I think they had a little debate about that, too. There was some discussion yeah. about it. <laughs> well, there's the famous story that Edgar Taffel tells about going to Buffalo. At some point, while they were actually on their way, I think he, Wright, and some of the apprentices, including Edgar Taffel, were on their way to Falling Water, and they took a little detour to Buffalo, and they stopped at the Martin house, and the Martins were not there. Darwin Martin, of course, was one of his great patrons, commissioning him to do a number of different things. 
But they stopped at the Martin house. The Martins were not there, but the housekeeper was. The housekeeper let him in because she knew perfectly well who he was. And he got into the house and he discovered that the furniture had been rearranged and that a number of the Japanese prints that he had bought specifically, planning them to be hung in various locations around the house, were not where he had assigned them to be. So he actually, with the assistance of his apprentices, rearranged the furniture in the house and put the prints back up on the walls because that was the way it supposed to be as far as Wright was concerned. Now, this is a house he designed 30 odd years before and he had no right whatsoever to be there, but that was right. And I believe he broke into Johnson's house as well when Johnson wasn't home and wandered around the place. You know, I think he always felt that he had uh, some kind of continuing interest in these places because they were products of his imagination. I guess we have to admire that confidence. But I'm thinking Philip Johnson's house in, in New Canaan. Ah. If I recall, he, he paid a visit there, and I think the housekeeper was. Well, he did. Yeah, that's a, another famous story. This was in the 1950s when he, Wright, was in the process of uh, designing a house, I think, in the same town, New Canaan. Mm-hmm. And he very much liked to needle Philip Johnson. And at one point, he walked into the house, and if I remember correctly, he said to the housekeeper, Is it Philip? And is it architecture? Not content to leave it at that, he said, I don't know whether I'm supposed to take my hat off or leave it on. Which, actually, when you visit the house, is a fair enough question, given the fact that the wallpaper is not wallpaper at all, but is the great outdoors that surround you on all four sides, since the walls are entirely of plate glass. Am I inside or outside? Am I outside or outside? <laughs> I don't know if you had done that to Mies, though. Um, well, Mies visited the house. Mies had very mixed feelings about the glass house despite the fact that he himself designed the house that was very much Johnson's inspiration for the house. Mies complained about Johnson's house, in part because Johnson didn't build the whole thing with steel. The ceiling is made of wood elements, you know, wood joists. And I think Mies felt that that kind of violated the creed to some extent. But I also think that Mies and Johnson had complicated relations. They were able to do one wonderful building together, and then they went in their own respective directions. Well, the relationship between Mies and uh, Wright was somewhat interesting. Uh, one of my professors at the University of Michigan was in Mies's office for many years. And in fact, I remember famously seeing a, a book that had Mies with his cigar. And Mies wasn't a very tall man, about 5'2", five, 5'4". Five, and he's, he's walking around one of the construction sites in Chicago, and my instructor was with him because he was a junior architect at the time, and the guy was you know six foot five, so he's, he's towering over Mies, you know, carrying the drawings, and, and Mies is looking over thing. And in a subsequent edition of the book, my professor's not in that picture anymore. He got, he got airbrushed out, so it's just like the solitary <laughs> architect walking you know the field and all that. But but he would tell these stories of you know when Wright would come to, to Chicago to visit and do whatever he's doing, he'd, he'd pop into the office. And Wright wasn't a very tall man either, so probably five foot two. That's why you walk around in his buildings, and his his metric for the perfect man was himself. So anyone who's taller than him was kind of out of luck. But he would go in there, and you know, Mies would have a cigar, and Frank would have his boater hat on, and all that. And the two of them would go out arm and arm and go drinking. So just the thought, you know, you'd a fly on the wall in a you know a Chicago bar somewhere with Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies Vandro talking architecture and doing whatever they would do, and the napkin sketches that would come off that table. Yes, um, we'll probably make a book all of its own. I wish we were there. Oh, absolutely. But I, I just remember being regaled with stories of you know, he, you know, Wright would pop into architecture schools and do the same kind of thing where he would you know pontificate and talk to the students about architecture. And I was thinking about his. The stories I heard when he used to visit U of M when he was building the uh, Palmer House in Ann Arbor. And then the story that you opened up early in the book about Wright going up to, um, was it uh, Harvard or 
where was he uh, speaking? Was it the train station and nobody came to meet him? That was at Yale. At Yale. That's right. Yeah, that was in the middle 1950s, I want to say 54, when he was chosen to be the inaugural speaker in a, in, in a lecture series that Yale had established of great Americans, not architects specifically, but they chose right. And he arrived at the train station having come up from Manhattan, where he was keeping an apartment at that point, because that was during the years that the Guggenheim was being constructed, and he felt he had to be nearby. And he gets to the train station and walks into this great, big, beautiful Beaux-Arts station with a, a station with the sun pouring in. It's a Cass Gilbert building. And there's nobody there to meet him. And here's this 80-something-year-old guy with a cane. And he's very much accustomed to being the king of his castle. I mean, that's the way he always ran the fellowship, the Taliesin Fellowship. I mean, he was very much accustomed to having people kind of waiting on him all the time. And someone should have been there to grab his bag, I'm sure, is what he said to himself. And so he prepared to just turn around and uh, go back to go back to New York, take another train. Fortunately, one of the or several of the uh, young undergraduates at Yale who were assigned to get him over to New Haven did finally show up. They were just running a little bit late, but it was much later into the evening he encountered Philip Johnson, who was the person largely responsible for his invitation. And when he saw Philip Johnson across the room, he managed to sort of meander his way over to him, and then looked him in the eye and said, Philip, I thought you were dead. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's classic Wright. It's, uh, you know, Wright was a man who could diminish, and, uh, and yet at the same time he could do with a smile on his face, and he was such a character. Well, and what's interesting is as abrasive and acerbic sometimes as, as Wright could be, that as he's getting toward what he knows has to be the end of his life because he's certainly up there in his 80s and all that. And he, he actually behaves a little more nicely to Johnson, saying, you know, I'm, I'm getting too old to have enemies, basically. I need to go out with friends. Well, I think he softened at the end. Uh, he made a point of taking Johnson to dinner a couple of times. Who knows who picked up the check? Probably Johnson did. He had more money. But they spent some evenings together towards the end of Wright's life that I think were, uh, were make-up time uh, to some degree. And I think there was an evolving mutual admiration on both sides of that relationship. Um, were there any surprises that came up as you, you dove into this research? Because certainly you have two very complicated men and their, their interactions and things that are going on. What surprised you most as you, you dove into your research for this book? Well, when I started this book, I knew a fair amount about Frank Lloyd Wright because I'd written about him before. But my knowledge of Johnson was much thinner, and I was impressed by the way he was able to reinvent himself as a young man. He, of course, had studied classics at, at Harvard. He aspired to be a philosopher, not a designer or a person in the arts in any real way. But that began to evolve in his 20s, and then in his 30s, he became an architect. And his story is an intriguing one because of the way he was able to become such a presence in 20th century architecture, despite the fact he was certainly not the best designer of his generation or of his time. But, you know, you in the 90s, you turned on the television and there he was talking to Charlie Rose. So you picked up a newspaper or picked up a magazine circa 2000 and you'd find him on the cover, whether it was Time Magazine or New York or Spy or any of those others. He was architecture's principal talking head. On the other side, one of the things that this wasn't exactly a surprise, but one of the things that I found 
extraordinarily satisfying about looking at Wright's career in more depth is, as you said before, that he had these three careers. And for those of us who were in the aging game, as we all are, you have to admire someone who can completely reinvent himself in his, say, 1940s and then do it again when he's about 70. Because the last 20 years of Wright's life were this extraordinarily protein, creative time. You know, you think that he died in 59, Falling Water was built in 36. So in those 23 years, he put together the Guggenheim and Falling Water and Taliesin West, which in and of itself is extraordinary, and the Johnson Wax Building. And, you know, there's another dozen other landmarks that any two or three of which, if you put them beneath the name of any other architect, they would be all of a sudden world-class and highly memorable. And he designed many, 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 many such buildings. You look at his career, and it's you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 yes. built pieces of work, ranging from sort of ordinary domestic stuff to, as you say, these, these kind of career-defining pieces of work. And you look at his, his long career, and, and one of the things I remember is in his own autobiography, and somebody had asked him, you know, what do you ascribe your, your level of fame with well, the fact that I live so long? <laughs> as that he was able to accomplish so much work. It's a very interesting contrast here to a man that I'm doing a little bit of work on now, Henry Hobson Richardson who I would argue, on the basis of at least my preliminary research, is a more significant architect than either Wright or Johnson. I mean, he, he reinvented our whole notion of interior space planning, and he sort of made American architecture, made it make sense in a way that it really hadn't beforehand. I think he was this astonishingly important figure. And yet, if you sit down at the dinner table and you say Frank Lloyd Wright, almost everybody, even if there were no other architects at the table, almost everybody is going to know who you're talking about. There's a pretty good chance that they're going to know who Philip Johnson was, at least in a vague way. You say Henry Hobson Richardson, probably not, you know, unless there's someone who's pretty expert on 19th century American design, it's probably a lost name. Now, the reason for that is he died of kidney failure, he died of Bright's disease at 47. If he'd had a career twice as long as his, as Wright did, I mean, Wright lived into his 90s, as did Johnson, my suspicion is he would be a much bigger presence in our cultural, intellectual life today, and people would know that name. There would be more buildings of his. He would have had a much more significant presence because he showed no signs of diminishing skills at the end of his life. But again, he died at 47 not at 90 or 92 or 94. Uh, and, and his work is absolutely beautiful, that the train stations that he did in the churches, I mean, his mastery of stonework and not doing it in a sort of a slavish European way, but in actually in, in a new vernacular. He started setting in motion the kind of things you see a little bit in Louis Sullivan's work and, and sort of defining an American architecture as opposed to one that's just a copy of a European architecture. Right. Well, the auditorium building in Chicago was redesigned by Sullivan after he saw a work of Richardson's. Sullivan acknowledges that in his autobiography that he just taught me to see things differently. And we think of Sullivan as this, again, wonderfully influential, important figure. Well, he was deeply influenced by Richardson. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it has to do, with, again, with media as well. Is if you have you know, Sullivan and Adler, who are dynamic figures, and Richardson, very much of, of the, the 19th century. But Wright was the first one who kind of come into the 20th century with you know, the different types of media. We have bigger newspapers and radio and other stuff that's going on that makes that jump into becoming a, a yes. piece of the culture. 
the, the, what be arguably is the, the world's first yeah. architect, the, the brand name architect. Well, you, you know, know the, uh, I told you before that one of the things that uh, made me write this book was I was interested in the relationship that they evolved. Uh, but to be completely honest, the thing that really decided me that I was going to write this book was the realization and looking at their writings and looking at the videotapes that survived and looking at the material about them as men is that neither of these guys ever shut up. <laughs> Absolutely not. They they were very good at self-promotion. Both Johnson and Wright talked and talked and talked and they talked interestingly and wittily and uh, in the case of uh, Johnson, he was completely capable of, you know, sort of diminishing himself. For the, I mean, he called himself a whore at one point. He was funny and engaging. And Wright had this gift for, you know, he really saw himself as a prophet. And he could stand before an audience of undergraduates and every one of them would leave the room having been one to the cause of organic architecture. He was, as his grandfather was, he was, a, as some of his uncles were, he was a preacher with a gift for conveying the message. He absolutely could do that. And, and Johnson, of course, was also very self-deprecated and, and could work, you know, the crowd. He, Johnson was great with people, one-on-one -on -one and everything. He, he, was, he was fun with that. And it's interesting watching his evolution of his career because, like Wright, he lived for a very long time. So he started off, you know, in a very modernist, international style, and you see him becoming the picture in the book with him holding one of his buildings, whatever, like, like Moses coming down with the tablets of postmodernism because yes. he's got the uh, the Chippendale top building. Um, yeah. well, it used to be AT&T. When I visited, right. it was the Sony building. Right. But just the fact that he was able to reinvent himself and, and, and adopt new things, too, showed that you can grow and change, you know, through the career, and he, he kept yes. himself relevant. Well, he was a chameleon, and he was intellectually curious and he was also, in a way that Wright always said he was not, and to some degree uh, that's fair enough, Johnson was a student of architectural history. He remembered as a child seeing Chart as a, I want to say, a 14-year-old and bursting into tears. He was so moved by the experience of it. He was interested in ancient buildings and modern buildings and all kinds of buildings, and he could engage himself in other people's passions. Wright was much more of an individualist. He was much more of a romantic who sort of listened to his own muse. That's not to diminish either man, but uh, again, there are distinctions between the two because in no sense were they the same guy. Not even close. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they both produced incredible and entertaining body work. I mean, I love walking around Manhattan and going by the, the Lipstick Building. Yes. It's just a beautiful piece of work. And going you know, in and around the, the Guggenheim, which is itself is, is a work of art. It's, it's a sculpture that happens to hold other pieces of art. Indeed. I just have to thank you for uh, producing this book because as an architect, I know what happens from the first day that the client shows up to when you finally turn over the building and all the stories that go into it from you know, all the fights and negotiations that you have with a client as to why something should be and how something should work to working with the contractors to find, find out what's out these details or what are the means and methods that we're going to do to build something extraordinarily strange as Guggenheim was. I mean, that's unprecedented. It has been built since anything quite that complicated. And certainly not without the benefit of a computer and 3D imaging to put it together. Architecture's Odd Couple is a wonderful collection of, of human stories about the men behind some of the most incredible American architects produced in the last hundred years. Tom, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for uh, spending the time with the History Author Show. I wish you the best on your next endeavors. I look forward to uh, reading your next work. Thank you very much. You just heard two best-selling authors for the price of one. Our man on the line was best-selling thriller author Tom Grace. 
If you enjoy the novels of such titans as the late Vince Flynn, you'll enjoy Tom's Mullenkill Kenny series too. So why not check it out at tomgrace.net? And of course, thanks so much to our guest, Hugh Howard, author of Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Philip Johnson. Tom sent me one bit of trivia on these two architects that I wanted to add in. They're such cultural icons that both men are named in popular music. Simon and Garfunkel had a song about and titled Frank Lloyd Wright, and the late David Bowie mentions Philip Johnson in his song Through These Architects' Eyes. And I'll never hear those two songs the same way again after reading Hugh's book. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. If you're going to buy something from Amazon, why not head to historyauthor.com first and just click through that banner ad. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. It's a great way to support the show if you enjoy what you hear from us. It helps keep us in highlighters, helps keep Tom in drafting paper, and you keep getting a great interview every Monday morning. And everybody's happy. Please remember to visit HughHoward.com for more on the buildings we love to admire. And follow him on Twitter at HowardHistorian. And while you're over there tweeting away, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. Well, that's it for this Build-A-Bear installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. On behalf of Tom Grace and everybody here at the History Author Show and iHeartRadio, thanks so much for time traveling with us today and for the past year. I hope 2017 is everything you want it to be. And maybe they'll finally finish that time machine. Hey, a guy can always hope, right? Happy New Year, everybody. Oh,